Before we get started, um, I know I've said this a couple times throughout our very lengthy study, but I just want to say that I really appreciate all of you going through this stuff with, with me and with Walton. Um, for me personally, um, this has been a very challenging and rewarding study, and I've, I've learned a lot through being forced to have to put words to this stuff with all of you every week. Um, it's really pushed my thinking in a lot of areas, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So hopefully it's been good for you all as well. Um, so we are in chapter 58 today. We've had some very strange topics that Isaiah has brought us through um, up until this point. I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, pagan false god worship. We've talked about child sacrifice. We've covered a lot of... Um, very strange topics. We've talked about um, we've talked about the dogs on the edge of the ancient map. Um, this chapter should feel a little more familiar to all of you. Um, it's going to be about fasting and about um, well, it's a critique. This is he's talking about um, how they're doing it the wrong way and. I don't think it's a coincidence, because I don't think this stuff happens by coincidence, that this week is Ash Wednesday. I mean, what are the odds? So let's, uh, let's take this as an opportunity to have a larger conversation about fasting in general, and as preparation for Ash Wednesday, to sort of remind ourselves what fasting is all about, how it fits into our life as Christians, um, maybe even go through a little bit of a primer on fasting for anyone in the room who's less familiar with it um, and less familiar with what it has to do with them. So, um, y'all good with that? Sound like a good way to spend the next hour? So 58 begins with the exhortation, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? These are the you know, the, the, the pharisaical people of God saying this. Why, why are you not paying attention to our fasting? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, 
when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so um, I'm going to try to balance a tightrope here because Isaiah is being very critical of the fasting practices of his day. That critique is set within a context in which people are actually fasting. So I'm going to try to be very careful in balancing this because on the one hand, we need to take to heart what Isaiah has to say to us this morning about fasting the wrong way. There's an equal and opposite danger that we have in our culture, which is to not fast at all and to think ourselves better for it and to fall into the trap of pride just like these Pharisees did uh, because they think they're fasting so well. We could do the same thing by not fasting at all um, and saying, well, look at us. We're, we're above all this legalism. So there's a balance here to be had. It is assumed in biblical times and for most of Christianity that if you are a follower of Christ, you will fast. This is an assumed thing. It is not compulsory. It is not something that you have to do. But it is a normative practice. Um... Now, then we're going to get into, well, what does it actually look like? Um, But the first thing to say is that it is assumed. It's as assumed as prayer. In fact, they often go hand in hand. So Christ, when he's giving his own uh, critique of false fasting, he says, when you fast, do not do it like this or like this. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. That's... That's a pretty important thing for us as modern Westerners to hear, is that this is assumed, that this is a practice that we will have to figure out. And yes, there's a way to do it wrong, um, but it's also important to do it, to actually practice this stuff. Um, We are getting into, in talking about this stuff, we're getting into a realm of Christian life that is very practical than what we often talk about in Sunday school. Y'all know, because we've done this enough times together, that I'm, I'm a fan of looking at the symbols in Scripture. And I'm a fan of uh, uh, tracking this beautiful visual language that Scripture lays out for us in this imaginative and sometimes ab- abstract way. This is not abstract. <laughs> this is extremely practical. And this is the hands-on part of your life with Christ and it the intellect doesn't matter so much here what matters is that you follow Christ with your body Um, so that's the first thing to say Um, do y'all have any thoughts before we move on I'm going to give sort of a an overview primer on what fasting is and how it works but well I like your phrase there that we I don't Whatever you said, we follow Christ with our body. Yes. If that's the way you said it. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's not only with fasting, but I mean, in all kinds of ways. Yes. And this is a very uh, anti-Gnostic approach, which I really like. <laughs> yes. We're not, we're not just a spirit man floating around. The body is the temple of the 
Holy Spirit and God. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Yeah. So, so uh, to your point, we live in a, a culture that's very influenced by Greek thought. The Gnostic, the, the word Gnostic itself is a Greek word. And it comes from, it comes from uh, various strains of philosophy, such as, you know, Plato, Socrates. Then you get into the Stoic philosophers who talk about how the body is a thing of evil and a thing to be avoided. Now, to be clear, I actually really like the Stoics. I get a lot out of them. I read them actually quite a bit. Um, but they're wrong in this area. This is this is where Christianity uh, uh, takes. We've talked about this many times in our study. How Christianity takes um, the pagan thoughts and concepts of the culture and redeems it and transforms it into something better. Well, we still have to wrestle through that today in our culture with Greek thought. There's Greek architecture all over the place. It is. It permeates the way that we think. Um, we are. We are descended from this sort of way of thinking. How many of y'all are going to watch the Super Bowl later today? Tell me that's not an offshoot of the old gladiator matches. <laughs> right? This stuff is all over the place. If once you see it, you can't unsee it. That we are living in um, the follow-up to Greco-Roman times. The fact that we live in a democratic republic right, is an example. We can list all of these different examples. So we have to contend with this way of thinking. And what the Greek philosophers did, among other things, and some of it was good, but one thing that they did was they separated out and dissected the human person into these various categories like body, soul, spirit, like they could be separated from each other. The separation of the body and the spirit only happens at death. While we're here, alive and breathing, you can't separate the two. What you do with your body will affect your spirit and vice versa. Um, now, I may be going a little too hard on the Greek philosophers. They might not have actually said it like that, but this is the result of what their thinking has done to us as cultures. It is, it's put us into this Gnostic way of seeing the world. Um, talk to me. To the point where your body can not match your spirit and gender. Yes. Yeah. My my body is one gender, but my spirit identifies as something else. Oh, and even further than that, particularly in Canada right now, not, not just here, but it's obviously becoming more calm here, but to add to the long acronym, there is now one called 2S, which means two-spirit. So I have more than one spirit inside of me that's, yes. that's identifying in different ways. Yes. So it's, it's, that, that's an outflow of this as well. Absolutely. When those folks say that we are many, I agree with them. I identify as legion. For a long time, there's been a rationalization of all sorts of hedonism. Yeah. That, well, it's just my body. Yeah. Yeah. As if the body is doesn't matter for you to use. You know. Yeah. So it, it's very easy with a topic like fasting or any of the spiritual disciplines really to um, you know poke fun and stuff like this in our culture but I want to make sure that we approach this with with uh, an introspective emphasis and look 
we can very easily fall into this trap, y'all. Um, we can very easily say, well, you know, I have freedom in Christ. What do I need to fast for? That's just legalism. This is something that could very easily be said within our church. Um, because we are so, and rightly so, we are grace-focused. Um, the body and the spirit are so interconnected that what you do with one will affect the other. So, um, some of y'all know that I, I'm a runner. I do, I do jogging at various times of the week. The reason why I do that is to manage my anxiety. Anxiety is a spiritual issue, but I can attack it from a physical standpoint. Does that make sense? So I don't have to take medicine because I do the spiritual discipline, and it is a spiritual discipline of exercise. Exercise is a spiritual discipline. In this day and age, it is absolutely a spiritual discipline. Um, so that's just one example. Uh, prayer, the way that we pray, also it matters with our body, how we pray. At various times in the church service, we might pray with our hands open. That doesn't magically make our prayer more effective, but it aligns your body and spirit, and it shows that you're, that you're praying with your whole person. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, what Paul says, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6 or 7, when our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. Yes. And in another place, he says, pray with your body and your spirit. Do it at the same yes. time, both teachings. Yes. Inside, it's hard to get the arrows all going in the same direction at the same time. Say that again. It's hard for us in our in our own being to get all of our arrows pointed in the right direction at the same time. Everyone in all kind of yeah. So we're tossed to and fro, you know, spinning around like a unstable land. Yes. Ship cast on a sea in a storm. Yes. Yeah. So so that's so if you if you're going to ask the question, well, what good will the spiritual disciplines do me? That's it right there. That's what good they'll do you. Um, They'll keep you from drowning. Um, so, big picture, what is fasting for? I have, I have laid out a few different purposes of fasting. So if you want to think, well, what, what good does fasting do? This is the good that it does. Number one, and we already mentioned this, fasting focuses other spiritual disciplines like prayer and giving. Isaiah's critique in here, here is in part that they're not using fasting to, to focus their giving. They're just fasting for fasting's sake. Well, fasting is not, a, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And part of that end is to focus your attention where it needs to be. So in terms of prayer, fasting can focus your prayer. If you have a hard time focusing when you pray, fasting might help with that. If you recognize within yourself, well, I need to give more, fasting might help with that. Fasting is a focusing tool um, or a sharpening tool. You can think of it like a, like a sharpening stone. Number two, fasting tempers the, the lower vices. And that's a Catholic way of saying it. Fasting tempers the vices that focus on your body, such as gluttony and lust. Um, in the words of uh, Patrick Beard, who many of y'all know, um, 
yes, I may want to look at pornography right now, but I really want a hamburger. <laughs> it's hard to want both at the same time. Um, obviously, it helps with gluttony as well, but I don't have to explain that one to you. Dick Gregory, a comedian of the 1970s or whatever, Yes. Days and days and days. I mean, he got real skinny. He said sometimes a turnip can make a woman look like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> That's what um, Number three, fasting brings to our attention the fact that we are waiting on the wedding feast. On the wedding feast. We are in a state of waiting right now. Waiting for Christ to come back. But if our bellies are full all the time, it's hard to live in that state of waiting. And it's hard to pray, come quickly Lord Jesus. Because life is pretty good right now. When you fast, you bring to your attention the fact that One, that not all is right with the world yet. Two, that there are greater things to come. Um, And it does say in Revelation that what's coming is the wedding feast. right. Right? So fasting helps to bring that to our attention. Number four, fasting fosters gratefulness. It makes you grateful when you do eat. If you've gone three days without food, food's going to taste amazing. Um, five, and this, is, this one is rare, and this one does not apply to everyone, but this is one of the purposes of fasting, so I'm going to throw this out here because this is one of the effects that fasting can cause. But hear me clearly, I'm not recommending this. Fasting can, in rare cases induce a heightened or abnormal mystical experience. Oftentimes when people have mystical experiences, fasting is a part of that. The reason why I'm not recommending that is because the mystics who experienced it don't recommend it. They say not to pursue those experiences for them, you know, for their for themselves. So if you're fasting for the purpose of having a vision, that's the wrong motive. That's that's idolizing the vision. That's loving the vision more than yeah. God. Yeah. It's manipulating God. Right. The mystics, yes. with their great, disciplines, great, you know. just, just to prepare themselves yes. in case God wanted to do something. Yes. But as an overview, as we talk about fasting, it is important to point out that fasting can do that. That is within the wheelhouse of what fasting can do. Um, and we already talked about number six. It'll it, It's... It aligns our bodies, minds, and spirits, or shows that they are aligned, and it teaches us to think that way, um, especially in worship. It helps us to worship with our whole person. In Deuteronomy, and we've been referencing Deuteronomy a lot lately in Sunday school, it says, you are to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of these aspects of who you are. Um, the spiritual disciplines of which fasting is a part um, 
is a means by which we do that. So those are some of the purposes or reasons why fasting is a part of our life as Christians. Um, we haven't covered the methodology yet, but just big picture, that is why we fast. Are there any other elders in the room? Are there any other reasons to fast that I failed to cover? Uh, this isn't a reason to fast, but I, I find it interesting that the only fast, this kind of stands in contrast to the Greek approach. Mm-hmm. The only uh, fast that's required in the law is the Day of Atonement, which is the High Holy Day. Uh, and it, it falls between or in some overlap with the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Trumpets. So within the calendar of feasts, there is a fast. Mm-hmm. And it is the most important day of the year, which, I mean, that's God at work. He, his ways are not our ways. That, that would not fit into any you know, worldly celebration that you give up food for a day. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have found, and not not myself because I don't fast that much, but sure. I have found that uh, people who fast uh, tend to have a, maybe you said this, they tend to have a, I don't know what, more of a spiritual discernment or a, even sometimes a prophetic sort of discernment. Yes. Uh, case that I lived in, I was, it's been 35 years ago, I was down in Venezuela preaching in a church down there. It was a different kind of church than our church, let's just say that. But anyway, I was talking with the village prophet down there, and this guy fasted a lot. Yes. And he said, uh, I discern that you're looking to buy a new automobile when you get back. Yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to pray that you could find, you know, what you need. I said, well, thank you. And boom, you know, and just something that happened. Yes. <laughs> well, at the risk of potentially saying too much here, um, I'll use my wife as an example of this. Um, my wife is very sensitive physically to food. If she eats sugar in the tiniest form, I'm not exaggerating, it'll ruin her whole week. Her body is that sensitive to it. This is a sort of um, fast that's been imposed upon her. (laughs) She, I mean, if she had her way, she would love to eat, you know, chocolate and all of this stuff, but she can't because um, it affects her spirit that deeply. Um, She is also, as many of you know, um, someone who has been given the gift of prophecy. I can't prove this, but I think the two are connected. I think her spiritual sensitivity and her physical sensitivity are one and the same. I can't prove that, but, um, you know, as someone who spends a decent amount of time with her, I think that this sensitivity... Uh, this sensitivity is something that permeates her whole self and who she is, both both body and spirit and every other part of her. Um, so you're saying you can't get away with anything? I can't get away with anything. <laughs> I can't get away with anything. She knows. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I can't bribe her with chocolate either. <laughs> well, this, this may be related uh, to number five. 
spiritual yeah. experience. It, it can yeah. induce your spiritual gifts, you know, whatever yes. they are. Yes. It's probably true of all the spiritual disciplines. They prepare you, you know, for receiving yes. and, and applying the gifts. Um, I don't think that all of these purposes that I've given are systematic. I think there's probably more, but these are just the ones that came to my mind as I was thinking through this stuff. Um, fasting does a lot. That that should be what we take out of this. It's a, it's actually a very important part of our life with Christ. Go ahead. I'm under the authority of my pastor and my teachers and my elders, but uh, one thing that I, years ago, uh, I don't know, maybe it was in the 80s, I lived by myself in the cabin. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a man of fasting, don't get me wrong. Sure. But uh, but that that time of my life, I was. And I went three days. Wow. And on the third day, my mind was so clear. Yes. And so uh, uh, so wonderful. The Word of God tastes good. Wow. I have a hunger for it. Amazing. I got just a little glimpse. But then I had an attack mm-hmm. while I was sleeping. I'm sure I'm not going to share that now. I mean, I'm okay. And yeah. I got through it. And the only thing I could think about was the cross and the blood of Christ. And I was in my mind, I was awake, but I couldn't get up and I couldn't move. Like somebody was holding me down in a dark, evil presence and so forth. You can call it a mystical experience because. The Lord woke me up, and I got up and walked around in my house, and I was fine. I wasn't afraid. Uh, but that happened, real thing. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, God truly convicted me because I'm not doing the things He would have me do like I should. And I, I spared, shared this for, for testimony. Uh, there's been mornings that I've fast until lunchtime, and I have some energy. I can do my work better. And, uh, but then, the conviction that I have is I love food and I love my fleshly desires more than I love God. I love God more. I mean, I know that, but I'm not practicing what I know. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. And then, the other instance where Jesus, uh, the disciples came, uh, they said, Lord, we couldn't cast the demons out. And you know, the Lord said, bring him to me. Like, you know, you didn't just bring him to me. He cast the demons out. And, he, you know, he uses the phrase, like, oh, yeah, little faith. But he, he didn't get on to them to go fast and pray. He just said that these only come out by prayer and fasting. So there was time for that. There's some people. I'm not that person. I'm not looking to get there. Right. But I am looking to obey the Lord more than what I'm doing and being able to take part a half a day or uh, I, I know some people miss a meal, maybe fast, you know, a morning or noon or whatever. But maybe those it's called to uh, people that have a deep prayer life, I feel like fast a lot, probably. You know. That's just We are we are so We are so anti-works in the Protestant world that it makes talking about this stuff difficult. Mm -hmm. Because I want to 
for the sake of making sense to all of you, I want to counterbalance everything I'm saying with, uh, but this isn't required. You don't have to do this. God still loves you either way. But at some point, that just gets in the way, and that becomes yet another idol. And um, there are spiritual laws, and Proverbs is all about this. He's like, look, there are spiritual laws in place to where if you live in accordance with them, this is what will happen to you. If you live in contradiction to them, this will happen to you. Um, We can call this the law of fasting. It is just how God set up the world to work. If you want your relationship with Christ to get deeper, you may have to put in the work. And that doesn't mean earning righteousness. That It's not a salvation issue. But Christ wants you to follow him. And that's an action. He doesn't have to pull you along the whole way. At some point, he wants you to walk with him. And the spiritual disciplines are a way that you do that. Walk and stand. Yes. Yeah. The Christian life is not all just sitting. So. You make the foot number seven would be that fasting helps us defeat the enemy. <laughs> well, that's true. Yes. Well, that's I, yeah. That's what Jesus said, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So... Any other thoughts on that? I'm not trying to rush through here. I had an experience one time, you know, talking about just kind of being a super grace believer. Yeah, you know? yeah. Right. And anyway, I was at a Bible conference somewhere, I don't know where. And anyway, the, the speaker was a very good, uh, but he was pretty amazingly overweight. And so I came time for lunch, and I saw this guy coming back from his lunch, and, I, and it, you know, oh. he had his plate piled up in a, a spherical mount on yeah. his plate. And I, I, I kind of did a double take, you know, and he saw me do that. <laughs> he did. And he said, well, we're all under grace, you know, or something like that. <laughs> we're under grace, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is the sin of Protestant Christianity. <laughs> yes. There's a great scene in uh, Brother, Son, Sister Moon when the bishop is sitting there with yeah. all this food and, hunger, yeah. you know, yeah. and, uh, and they want him to come out and deal with Francis who's standing naked outside. You know, and, yeah. uh, he says, Helen, that I'm, I'm in my prayer time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, they keep insisting he just slams down and says, oh, and right. he says, have keep that pot. Yeah, 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 keep this warm for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a couple, a couple uh, practical things in terms of method. How, how practically do you fast? Um, traditionally, it's food. Now, oftentimes, uh, in the modern days, you might hear in Lent people giving up social media, people giving up um, maybe dessert. If they do do food, maybe they'll do dessert. Traditionally, that's not how it's done. You're giving up a, a, an actual meal or a staple part of your diet, such as meat, uh, something that actually has substance to it, something that's actually nourishing. Um, so traditionally, the way to do it is you either 
give up food entirely for a defined period of time. That's another key. It's not indefinite. It's a defined window of time. You're giving up food during that window or you're only eating bread. That's, that's the other way that it's often done. There are variations within that, but I'm talking big picture how the church has done it over the years. Um, this is something really important with fasting. Fasting is not the giving up of something sinful. Fasting is the giving up of something good. And within Lent, there's a rule that you break your fast on Sunday. So if you're giving up social media because you think social media is bad for you, but then you're doing social media all day on Sunday, that defeats the purpose of fasting. Does that make sense? If you're trying to use fasting uh, as an opportunity to stop eating so many sweets, but then you pick out on sweets on Sunday, you're not fasting right. So, whatever you do, whatever you give up six days of the week um, is going to be something that you integrate back into your life come Sunday. And then that's the rhythm through Lent. Six days without, one day with. Six days without, one day with. For the whole season of Lent. That's because our fasting is a symbol of our mourning. Yes. Right? We contemplate death, sin and death. Yes. But there's no mourning on Resurrection Day. Correct. However, if your fast suddenly comes out of love for Christ, then it's fine to fast on Sunday. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This, this also is not a hard and fast rule. And, and some, some people will actually love the idea of sacrificing for Christ. Um, yes. Um, well, I mean, to your point about anticipating, Eucharist is the picture of the wedding feast. We practice the wedding feast at Eucharist. Right. So, you know, that that's why you don't fast on Sunday. If you've gone without food for six days, you're going to practice the wedding feast when you take communion. So, yes. Um, when I was young, growing up, I grew up a Catholic and, uh, you know, I mean, Catholics are big on Friday. You know, when I grew up, Friday was busy to be, you know, there was, lot, there was a lot of fasting involved in it. And my mom was telling me something about, you know, that some, something exactly what you said, you, you, you give up something good, something that has great value. And mm -hmm. I told her, I said, well, you know, I, I really, if that's true, what I'm going to fast is going to church. <laughs> Somehow it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, she didn't go for it. Did she? I'll yeah. give up going to church. <laughs> Not the best kind of fast. When I was a kid, this is a very apocryphal story. But when I was a kid going to, to elementary school, they always had fish sticks in the lunchroom on Friday. Exactly, and it was it was great fun. You know, fish sticks, all right, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun fast, you know. I didn't realize that. Well, this is because of the Catholic kids, you know, that they will make make you know no meat Fridays easy for them. Yeah. Uh, but it was completely the opposite among the Protestant children, <laughs> you know, because fish sticks were just such great fun. So. Little ketchup. <laughs> it's, it's how uh, how it changes things around. So here's, here's another important part of the method of how you fast. And this, this may be the most difficult part. 
This is the part that Isaiah is critiquing. When you give up something in your life, Isaiah is saying, you don't just fast, you fill that fast up with something. In the case of Isaiah, he's saying you fill it up with righteous acts, with almsgiving, with taking care of the poor. Um, That is a necessary part of the equation. If you're going to give up something, you have to fill it with something else. Because if you don't, something bad will take will fill that void. The void will naturally be filled by something bad. Um, so, in, going back to our passage in Scripture here, in 58, he says, Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? He's not saying don't fast. He's saying fill that void. Once you've removed food, you fill that with charitable giving. You fill it with taking care of the people around you. You see that as a act of love to God. Does that make sense? Yeah. That is, that's possibly, that may be the most challenging part of this whole teaching for us in our church. It is for me. Um, it's not that difficult for me to fast, it is difficult for me to fill it with acts of charitable giving. That's the difficulty for me. Yeah, what is good works Exactly, exactly. Um, what does not hide yourself from your own flesh exactly? Um, to, to give your tunic to someone else. To do what? To give your tunic to someone else. He says when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. So in the case, in this example, there's only one coat, but there's two people. Well, you give it to, you give it to your neighbor who's in need. Give them the coat as well. Exactly, exactly. In other yeah. words, this is just talking about other human beings. Yes. In need, right? Yes, yes. Um, okay, and now we... Tremendous opportunities in Jacksonville, this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, tremendous. I mean, there's so many different organizations now that yeah. are out there doing it. You know, yeah. Yeah. So. So I'm talking to myself here. There's a couple ways that I can do this if I'm going to replace um, the void that fasting creates with an act of service or charitable giving. There's a couple ways I can do that. I can fill that time that I normally would have spent eating with some sort of act of generosity. Or I can use the money that I would have spent on food you know, those are a couple different ways to think about it. Um, so now we've, we've sort of naturally transitioned to the next big bullet point, which is on doing it wrong, on fasting the wrong way, um, which is the critique here of Isaiah, and later the critique of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Scripture actually has a lot to say about fasting, but it's usually uh, you're doing it wrong is usually how it goes. Again, though, within that is an assumption that people are fasting. That is a necessary assumption before you can get to the critique. So I have a couple quotes here um, just to add to what Isaiah is saying from a couple of the church fathers. So um, the first one is possibly my favorite church father, St. Ephraim the Syrian. He writes a lot about um, biblical symbolism, so I've really grown to value what he has to say. So here's what he has to say about this very passage. This is his commentary on Isaiah 58. St. Ephraim, the Syrian, 
Um, So he's commenting on this very passage. Do not fast with the aim to fulfill your evil intentions, as if you had made a vow in order to obtain one thing or another and so that misfortunes might befall your enemies. This is what Craig was talking about earlier, using fasting as a way to manipulate God. Wow. Ephraim's saying, don't think that fasting is, is some sort of magic pill that will get you whatever you want in some sort of health and wealth kind of way. Wow. Like if you fast, God will give you a car. It doesn't work like that. St. Ephraim is still talking here. Through this kind of fasting and prayers, Isaiah says, you seek to delight your will and not mine. As in, by that kind of fasting, we're delighting ourselves and not God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right, so here's another quote from Jerome. Um, y'all know about Jerome. He translated the Bible into Latin. The Catholics still use the, the Vulgate to this day. So he's kind of a heavy hitter in terms of the you know, church fathers. Um, if you have fasted two or three days, do not think yourself better than those who do not fast. You fast and are angry. The other eats and wears a smiling face. You work off You work off your irritation and hunger and quarrels. He uses food in moderation and gives God thanks. Wow. So there you go. There are lots of warnings against improper fasting. Um, well, you know, as you've already noted, yeah. giving is another part of discipline. Yes. The scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. Yes. He also loves a cheerful faster. Yes. Yep. Yeah, don't uh, don't make yourself look really, you know, yeah. worn out with your hair disheveled right. and your right. you know, yeah. you know <laughs> your clothes all torn up. And you're not free from from Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. You could wear ashes on your forehead every day. All right. So um Say what now? It is a secret matter. Yeah, it's a it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance because on the one hand, yes, it is, but 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 there is also a communal aspect of fasting. And you know, with Lent, it's something that we're all doing together. Um, so it's kind of a you know, it's it's a tightrope. Um, I have a couple other things to read real quick before we finish out our chapter in Isaiah. Um, so. Some of y'all will be familiar with this. This is from the Didache, which is, all that means is teaching. This was an early Christian manual for uh, church life that was circulated around early churches. Nick, how early was the Didache? Um, some date it as early as the 60s, which would have been when Paul and Peter were still alive. Yeah. And as late as maybe the 120s, 130s. So, so it could be anywhere. And it could have started then and formulated and came together. But yeah. Yeah, but it's very early. So it's so it's it's not wrong to say that this manual was put together by people who were interacting directly with the apostles. That's not wrong to say that. And they they go through a whole list of various practical things about how to be a Christian. Um, things like um, do not be angry, for angry leads to murder. It's very basic stuff, like you would hear out of Proverbs or maybe the Sermon on the Mount. Some of it's quoting the Sermon on the Mount directly. Um, Now, concerning fasts. Do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday, 
So you fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> this is very practical. Now, he's not saying that there's anything special or spiritual about what days of the week. But if people are making a, a really big deal about their public fast that they're doing, you just fast quietly, do your thing. And this is, and this is like when Christ says, go into your closet. It's, like, it's the same sort of thing. Um, in the same section concerning baptism... Now, concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other kind of water. If you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. I love this book because it shows where people's priorities were in the early church. It's important that you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whether you baptize with a basin or in a river doesn't matter as much. And there and there and before the baptism, now this is the part that I wanted to read to you. Before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. If you're unable to fast, that's okay, but if you're able, you should fast before you're baptized. Also, you must instruct the one who is to be baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand. This is why Lent is in the time of year that it is. Because oftentimes in the early church, people would be baptized on Easter Sunday. That was just something that people did. I think practically, it's probably because it was a little warmer then. And you're, are you going to be baptized in the river in winter or in spring? <laughs> Let's just wait till it gets warmer out so no one dies of hypothermia. I, yeah, I think this is, I think this was, there. I don't think there's anything special about the time of year other than just the practical nature of it. But if you're going to get baptized in Easter, then the period of fasting is going to be before then. So that's why we fast in the spring. And and, and usually in the spring, there's more water. Yes. Yes. You know, another thing about the Dead Arcade, and I think you mentioned it, is just so, so common sense. So practical, you know, and what they're bringing out. So... Fasting is something the Didache is saying is something that's good for new converts. It should happen around the time that they're getting baptized and receiving their initial instruction in the faith. They should learn very early on. This is, this is a practical piece of wisdom for any of us who disciple new converts in the faith. Get them very early on to do this stuff with their body. The gospel is not just a soundbite memorization thing where once you uh, have memorized these key verses then you're in the Didache says very clearly that for any who are able they should get used to worshiping with their body very early on does that make sense? Yeah. this is where the practice of catechism started as well yes. before Easter and fasting but it just was extended during the period yes. about a three year period how long was that? That catechism period was it for the whole forty days, or was it? As it started, uh, yes, it was for that forty days prior to Easter. Okay, but it, it ended up um, being extended as persecution arose in the church, and so a lot of people went through almost a three-year catechism period. Really? Uh, depending on the location, it was it was it was, wow. it was local, localized in a lot of ways, but it was, but it was kind of a three-year period for some because. Uh, you could die if you publicly confess Christ. So make sure you really believe. Make sure you're saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, but 
the practice of Lent itself, I think, became more common because others in the church were joining the catechumens in their fast yeah, yeah, before yeah, Easter. Yeah, yeah. And so wow. Lent uh, became more of a regular wow. practice then. So I have one more thing to read to y'all. Um, and, and if we don't finish the chapter today, I'm totally fine with that. We can, we can pick up wherever we leave off on the following week. Um, I don't want to rush this because I feel like this is important. Um, so most of y'all will know this book. We're reading through life together as part of Nick's uh, Church in Babylon series. Well, this is his other heavy hitter. This is the cost of discipleship. He opens with a thing about costly grace and cheap grace. This is exactly what we were talking about earlier with thinking of our all the blessings of our life with Christ as something that we're entitled to or something that uh, we have to wrestle with God for. Um, I'll let you read that chapter on your own time. That's not what I want to read. What I want to read is from chapter 16. So I'll just read a couple paragraphs and then ask you how it strikes you. He, this is his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So he's commenting on the part where Christ critiques the Pharisees. And he says, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites. Fast uh, to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus takes it for granted that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. Strict exercise of self-control is an essential feature of the Christian's life. Such customs have only one purpose, to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. Fasting helps us to discipline the self-indulgent and slothful will, which is so reluctant to serve the Lord. And it helps to humiliate and chasten the flesh. By practicing, I think I'm pronouncing this right, abstemiousness, we show the world how different the Christian life is from its own. If there's no element of asceticism in our lives, that is of um, dying to yourself, if there's no element of that in our lives, if we give free rein to the desires of the flesh, taking care, of course, to keep within the limits of what seems permissible in the world, we shall find it hard to train for the service of Christ. When the flesh is satisfied, it is hard to pray with cheerfulness or to devote oneself to a life of service which calls for much self-renunciation. This is not that difficult to understand. If you eat a lot of carbs, you experience brain fog. This is, I mean, this is pretty... A lot of health science has been focused on fasting over the last few years. And there are a lot of health and fitness advocates for fasting now for this very reason. It sharpens your mind, makes you more attentive. This is what Jim was talking about. So, all right, so let me read one more paragraph and then I'll open it up to y'all. The flesh resists this daily humiliation, first by a frontal attack and later by hiding itself under the words of the Spirit in the name of evangelical liberty. We claim liberty from all legal compulsion, from self-martyrdom and mortification, and we play this off against the proper evangelical use of discipline and asceticism. We thus excuse our self-indulgence and irregularity in prayer, in meditation, and in our bodily life. But the contrast between our behavior and the word of Jesus is all too painfully evident. We forget that discipleship means estrangement from the world, and we forget the real joy and freedom which are the outcome of a devout rule of life. As soon as a Christian recognizes that he has failed in his service, that his readiness has become feeble and that he has sinned against another's life and become guilty of another's guilt, that all his joy in God has vanished and his capacity for prayer is quite gone, 
it is high time for him to launch an assault upon the flesh and prepare for better service by fasting and prayer. Any objection that asceticism is wrong, that all we need is faith, is quite beside the point. It is cruel to suggest such a thing, and it is no help to us at all. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the Spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. How is it possible to live the life of faith when we grow weary of prayer, when we lose our taste for reading the Bible, and when sleep, food, and sensuality deprive us of the joy of communion with God? All right, talk to me. Well, this is our struggle today in the modern age. Does that strike you as correct? Do you think what he's saying is right? Or do you think he's too... Does that sound too Catholic? Well, he, he was living in a very complicated place and time. You know, when he's, uh, he wrote this as the rise of Nazism was going on around him. What, like today? Huh? Like today? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, Rise I, of Nazis? Yeah. Rise things of Nazis. Have, things have not changed that much. I mean, it may be that we, I'm not afraid the police are going to come into my house and you know, throw me in prison or anything like that. But at the same time, you know, they're going to make, they're going to destroy you other ways. They're going to isolate you or kick you out in other ways. Well, it didn't happen here, but a lot of churches were shut down in the West over the last few years by, by force, by the government. By COVID. By the government. In the name of COVID. There's a difference. And we may see it more and more as time goes on. Yeah. Um, all right. We've got a few minutes left. If you fast the way God says to if you do the proper fast, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of of streets to dwell in. I don't have a whole lot to say about this other than he's talking about normal Christian life. He's talking about prayer working. You talk with God and God answers. Um, you walk through the wilderness uh, that is your life and God is before you and behind you. All of these examples that he lists are just normal parts of Exodus living 
of walking through the wilderness on your way to the promised land. Um, And then he says, at the end of that, he says, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. Remember, this is in the time of the exile to Babylon. And Isaiah's words here are encouragement to people who are going out into exile and are watching Jerusalem be destroyed. And he says, keep following me and you'll see these ruins rebuilt. Um, There is a a pair of verses at the end of this chapter about the Sabbath. We talked about the Sabbath a little bit a week or two ago. I don't remember which one. Um, I'm going to save that for next week so that we don't rush it. Um, Is there anything else we should talk about in regards to fasting before we before we call it for the week? Fasting is not compulsory, but it is a normal part of life in the kingdom. It's a normal part of walking with God. And all of these critiques that are in Scripture about fasting are not reasons to not fast, but rather reasons to do it right. So, there's nothing else. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.